This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A federal appeals court will hear arguments later today on President Donald Trump's controversial travel ban. The executive order has generated a lot of reaction in Colorado, from approval to fear. In a few minutes, we're going to hear from Weld County, where President Trump won nearly 60 percent of the vote in November and where many people support the president's move. First, let's hear from Colorado's largest mosque, the Colorado Muslim Society. Many members of the congregation have ties to the countries included in the order. And I'm joined by the mosque's spokeswoman. That's Iman Judah. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much. The order suspends travel by all refugees to the U.S. for 120 days at least. And it puts a 90-day hold on travel by anyone from seven countries where Muslims are in the majority, Iraq, Syria, Iran, Sudan, Libya, Somalia, and Yemen. Give me an example of someone in your congregation who is directly affected. Yeah, it's been really tough to kind of watch a lot of this unfold. Um, There's one gentleman that has really stood out that my heart goes out to. um, And obviously for his safety and privacy, I, I won't disclose his name, but he is a part of our congregation, and he is a refugee from Yemen, and he doesn't have the financial capabilities to go back to Yemen. So he is here, but the problem is is that his family, his five children, are still in Yemen, and his wife was recently killed in the war in Yemen. So... Like I said, he doesn't have the financial means to even bring his children. And with the ban, that's not even an option anymore. So his children are literally stuck in a war-torn country as minors without their mother. Were they on the verge of coming to the U.S.? Or is it just that they can't now start the proceedings with much hope? I think he was kind of in that pro- in both. He was kind of, you know, starting the process, but everything's been halted. And he cannot even move forward with bringing his children to safety and security under his guardianship in the United States, even as a parent, um, because of the ban. When you've talked to other members of the congregation here in Denver since the order was issued, what are their concerns? I think there's a few different concerns. One, I think the simple concern of uncertainty is breeding a lot of um, fear, But I don't want it to seem as if the fear is as palpable as many think. There is a huge movement among Muslims, both in Colorado and domestically with, again, throughout the United States, that are banning together, whether they are refugees, they're immigrants, they're naturally born Muslims, to say we are standing up against this and we will not allow for this and we will not allow for our civil civil liberties to be, um, you know, uh, um, offended. And so, but hand in hand with that, we have a lot of non-Muslims standing up with us. And to have that backing is awe-inspiring. As of now, a federal judge in Washington state has suspended the order, meaning it isn't being enforced. And uh, some of the people who would otherwise be affected are entering the country. As we said, there is a hearing later today uh, in California on the order. Uh, Is that easing people's concerns? It is a little bit. And I think it's proof to, you know, 
what our constitution truly says, you know, what we are truly allowed to do in this democracy, that to, you know, pick people out based by their race, their religion, where they come from, that is not who we stand um, or what we stand for as Americans or in the United States. I think the administration would say that this is not necessarily specific to one faith, that the refugee ban is broader than that. Uh, though there is some mention in the executive order of favoring some minority faiths if uh, travel from these countries resumes. You are a lay leader of the Colorado Muslim Society, and you run an agency that promotes relationships between the U.S. and Mm -hmm. the Middle East. I want to say that your father, Mohammed Joda, uh, helped found the Muslim Society. You You were born here in the United States. And and the Muslim community has been at the center of controversy before. I think back, for instance, to September 11th, 2001. Can you contrast that period of time to this one? Sure. And what I I heard you say in terms of the more recent events is that you you think perhaps that the Muslim community has found its voice. Do you think that differs from after 9-11? I do. Um, I think after 9-11, the nation was in shock. You know, this was an attack on our soil. And it's a lot different than putting a policy ban, you know, in effect. Um, And on 9-11, people banded together in the name of peace, in the name of moving forward, in the name of, you know, solidarity. Um, I know immediately following 9-11, my father organized a, a peace circle around the mosque and so many people showed up that they circled the mosque three times holding hands, which is huge. I mean, it's a very large campus. Um, but in contrast to what we're seeing today, we're seeing a lot of, again, non-Muslims standing in solidarity with Muslims. But we're seeing, and, and this is the difference, it's a sea change. We're actually seeing people coming out to say, not on my watch. If Muslims will have to register on a Muslim registry, then I will register as well, even though I'm not Muslim. If Muslims have to go to an internment camp, I am going to sign the Ralph Carr bill that's going to say that's absolutely not going to happen in Colorado. Ralph Carr is a former Colorado governor who mm -hmm. spoke up during the time of Japanese-American internment. Right. And Joe Salazar is drafting an amazing bill that essentially says, you know, uh, Colorado resources will not go towards any kind of Muslim registry or internment camp. This is the Democratic state lawmaker. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with a lay leader at the Colorado Muslim Society. It's the state's largest mosque. That is spokeswoman Iman Judah. Uh, In a few minutes, we'll hear a report from Greeley, where CPR News spoke to several people who support President Trump's executive order. One person we met at a Republican club was Samuel Adams. We have no responsibility to people in other countries to assure their safety and their security. Your parents, I think, were Palestinian refugees. They are, What's yes. your response to that? Um, well, the fact of the matter is, is that the United States gives ample amount of foreign aid to many countries for their security. And if we go on, you know, with that kind of mentality, then this comment is, in fact, false. The other thing is... There is are that, some who would like to see that kind of aid change. Though. Sure, absolutely. Um, the other reality is, is that... You know, if he is worried about the people coming into this country, the amount of vetting 
that refugees receive on the other end before they even reach our shores is so extensive. It can go into six months sometimes, so much so that that's, you know, 10 times more than what they would receive on our um, receiving end or in our airports. So people need to understand that by the time they get here, they have been vetted to the extreme amount. And they end up being, you know, great members of society that contribute to the fabric of this nation. At this same Republican meeting, we heard from a retired financial executive named Lee Korins, who pointed out that this doesn't stop travel forever. It's a 120-day suspension while the new president and his team make sure that they're taking every possible step to ensure people coming in don't pose a terrorist threat. Here's Lee Korins. To me, it is nothing more than somebody who is taking over as chief executive to study what has gone on up to that point. 120 days is a reasonable period of time for somebody to say, how have you been vetting these people? Which obviously differs from your picture of, of refugees and the vetting process. He's saying, take some time to review. It's not a permanent state. Sure. Um, And that would be okay if we weren't hearing accounts of even naturally born Muslims being held at borders. I travel for work and um, I go to the Middle East often. And with the risk of having being held on in New York, in Atlanta or any place like that, to me is unconstitutional. Are there more anti-Muslim acts in the community that you are hearing about? Thankfully, in Colorado, we are not receiving a lot of those acts. However, throughout the United States, unfortunately, there is an increase in um, retaliation, whether it's graffiti, phone calls, um, or any kind of, you know, uh, backlash out of out of uh, the election. But you must feel some relief that you haven't seen it locally. Absolutely. We've seen some incidents involving U.S. citizens, people who've lived here their whole lives, becoming radicalized and engaging in terrorism. Are you concerned that some Muslims already in the U.S. might become so frustrated by an order like this that it radicalizes them? You know, I think it's it's always a risk, you know, but those are so isolated and so minimal. Um, but it's, it's important to remember that... Um, you know, that can happen in any society, regardless of the country, regardless of the administration. Um, And, you know, so far, we're blessed to say that that hasn't happened a lot. And we have worked very closely with law enforcement to make sure that it's mitigated, and that it's essentially nipped in the bud before it gets to a point that it can't be handled. But do you think that the executive order might be a radicalizing tool? Um, you know, it might, it might be, but, you know, to be honest, it's, it's hard to tell. And the Colorado Muslim Society, along with other um, Muslim communities throughout the nation are, have a heightened awareness of their, of their communities and know how to react to those kinds of things. You talked about the uh, connection between uh, the mosque and law enforcement just a moment ago. And uh, indeed, President Trump said on the campaign trail that Muslims who come into the country, quoting here, have to report the problems when they see them. Yeah. What did you make of that? You know, it's funny because um, 
a lot of a lot of mass shootings in the United States are done by white Christian men, and we barely ever, if if ever, go to a church and ask them to um, or be accountable for their actions. And I ask you the same question is why are Muslims or mosques accountable for things like this? And we shouldn't be. Um, like I said, these are rogue and isolated events. Having said that, um, you know, the Muslim communities do work very closely and we do very much value those relationships because we understand that not only is it the safety of Americans, but it's our safety as well because we are Americans. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Iman Judah is a spokesman for the Colorado Muslim Society, the state's largest mosque. She's also executive director of Meet the Middle East, which promotes relationships between the U.S. and the Middle East through education and through travel. Weld County is Trump country. The president won there by nearly 60 percent. But Greeley, its largest city, is also home to hundreds of refugees. CPR's Sam Brash went there to hear what people are saying about President Trump's travel ban. Students at the Global Refugee Center in Greeley practice English language vocabulary and pronunciation. A Burmese student glances across his desk to watch a Somali woman follow along on a worksheet. After class, they rush the teacher with questions about their immigration paperwork. Bring this this tomorrow. Do you have one? Some walk down the hall to ask Sultan Ahmed for help. He's a refugee from Myanmar who assists other refugees at the center. Last week, he realized President Trump's executive order on immigration could keep him from his wife and four kids. Before this order, I expect to reunite my family in one year, within one year. A lawyer told him it could have taken twice that long with the order in place because it would have paused refugee resettlement for four months. But the programs restarted over the weekend after a Seattle judge struck down key parts of the order. Trump says he'll fight the decision. Even so, it's a relief for Ahmed. I always living with homesick. I always missing my wife, my son, my family. He said the order heightened those emotions and confused many of the refugees he helps. But while the order brought concern to the Global Refugee Center, others in Greeley welcomed it. It's not a ban. It's a, it's, let's take a look and see what's going on. That's Karen Corrins. I met her early in the morning at El Cielo, a Mexican sports bar across town. She was one of about 30 people at a regular breakfast for local Republicans. As a person who believes Trump will try to protect us, that's what we're looking for, someone to close the border, someone to keep bad people out. But how do you know who's a bad person? She thinks the order would have given the government time to figure that out. And according to a Reuters poll, many agree with her. More Americans support the order than oppose it. Michael Gale likes it precisely because it focuses on seven Muslim-majority countries. We should only let people come in who are willing to assimilate into our culture. Our culture is Judeo-Christian, and their culture is warlord, murdering, lying, pedophile tyrants. That's a characterization many will find offensive, and it goes against the written tenets of Islam. Studies also show that Muslim Americans largely adopt U.S. customs and culture. But civil liberties groups agree with Gale that the order prioritizes one religion over another. In fact, they argued that's what makes it unconstitutional. I brought that point up with Skip Carlson, who organizes the GOP breakfast. He pulled out pocket constitutions and started slapping them on the breakfast table. This constitution doesn't protect the rights of a person in Yemen. It doesn't protect the rights of a person in Sweden. 
You know whose rights it protects? Ours. All these questions about refugees and Muslim immigrants aren't abstract in Greeley. Easy employment in Weld County's meatpacking industry has made it a popular destination for refugees from East Africa and Southeast Asia. Samuel Adams III is an oil field consultant, and he says he runs into them all the time. I'll see what I consider Middle Easterners at the grocery store, like at Walmart, and I'll walk up and I'll say, hi, how are you doing? No response, no reply, not even a, an eye glance, not even an acknowledgement. Tom Norton is Greeley's Republican mayor. He's heard these sorts of complaints before, but he thinks people in his town should be patient. When you walk down the street at Greeley, it's a friendly community, and so you say hi to a lot of people. But it takes a while for a refugee to learn some of the customs of the language. But Norton's hopeful. Reported crimes are rare in refugee neighborhoods. Greeley schools are putting on plays about immigrant cultures. And Norton says integration isn't a new challenge for the community. The town is an agricultural powerhouse exactly because it's long-welcomed farmers from Europe and Mexico. I think Greeley, myself, really can benefit by the cultural diversity that we have, but it takes a lot of work. And that diversity of cultures and opinions puts Greeley at the forefront of the recent tumult over immigration. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. You can find out where refugees in Colorado come from and where they've resettled in the state at CPRnews.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. For a Colorado team, the countdown to the 2018 Winter Olympics in South Korea begins this weekend in Everett, Washington. These four men aren't skiing down a mountain or skating with hockey sticks, although they hope to pull off their own miracle on ice, with a 42-pound stone and brooms. With me is budding curler Josh Chetwin. Josh, welcome to the program. Ryan, thanks so much for having me. You are a former baseball player who has played for European Championships and uh, even in an Olympic qualifier for baseball. How did you come to be involved in curling? Well, I had played baseball pretty much my whole life, and I was getting to the age where I physically was struggling doing it. And I wanted to find a lifetime sport, something I could do well into my, my later years, because I love the competition. I enjoy sport. So I, in the back of my mind, knew about curling. And in 2014, the Denver Curling Club opened a new facility, state-of-the-art. It's off of 6th Avenue, right where Golden meets Denver. And really I, the first curling center for miles. Yeah, the, the closest one to here is in Bismarck, North Dakota. So okay. we are an oasis. And I went in there and just tried it out, and I fell in love immediately. It's this great combination of a requirement to be a real team along with athletic ability. People don't realize that, but there's a huge aerobic piece. And what other people don't realize it, because they think most people see it as some sort of weird amalgam of bowling and shuffleboard, but it's actually a really strategic sport as well. Yeah. How do you explain curling to the uninitiated? I think that the best analogy is chess on ice. And the reason for that is that you have to think two, three moves ahead. So you'll throw the stone down the ice and you set up guards, much like pawns and chess, and then you're trying to get it around. And, and the ideal is to get the stone, your stones, closest to the center of those concentric rings that look like a bullseye. It's called the house. And the, however number of stones you get closest for your team, those are the points you get. So only one team scores per end, which is kind of like an inning. There's a certain amount of physics involved in it, too. Very and much the a, physics of ice. Yeah, very much. A, one of my teammates who's playing on this team we're going to the national championships with, he's a civil engineer. And he said when he was in college and playing at Marquette that the people who were drawn to it had never played 
played before typically were engineers because they love the angles. So much of the game is being able to identify what angle you want to throw your rock to hit another rock in order to make it move in the direction you want it to go. And explain the role of the brooms. Well, the brooms make it go not faster, you can't speed up, but makes it go farther and makes it go straighter. So you're able to control to a certain degree the way the rocks move with the brooms. Not a tremendous amount. You can't curl it in more of a direction one way or another, but what you can do is get it farther. Does Colorado have a big curling community? Large enough, I suppose, to have a center, but to put it into some context for us. Yeah, it's very much growing. There's about 400 people in the club. Uh, it has some history. Back in the 90s, there was a, a, the Colorado, or excuse me, the Denver Curling Club has been around since the 60s. They played uh, in different areas at various different times. Uh, but in terms of being elite and being a team that could actually compete for a national championship, that's very new. And mm. our team is the first to qualify from Colorado in 20 years. Why is it called curling? Because you don't throw the rock straight down the ice. You have to throw it with control. And when you get the rock to spin, it allows you to have more control over to where it goes. And literally, it curls from from one location to another. So when the skip, who's the one with the broom at the far end, designates where you want to throw, it's never where you want the rock to end up. It's the line that you want to take in order to get to that final location. Ah, more of the physics and the strategy. Where does the athleticism come in? Well, the sweeping is actually very aerobic. And uh, what you have to do is to sweep very hard. And they actually have a phrase where it's called hurry hard. And you get on top of your, your broom as much as you can, putting as much body weight on it and sweep as fast as you can. And that allows you to get, again, the, the farther or, or keep it straighter. Uh, so you found three others, I suppose, got together with them and created this team that will be at the championships or yeah, what? I'd actually flip it around. They found me. Okay. Uh, all three of my teammates have played for quite a long time. Our skip, who's generally the most experienced player, has played for 30 years. He's originally from Canada, is now an American citizen. You have to, of course, be American in order to play in the U.S. national championships. Uh, that's the way you end up qualifying for the Olympics. Uh, our Next player, who's the vice, he's been playing since fifth grade. He's originally from Wisconsin. And then we have another player who's been around a long time. I'm the rookie. I'm the oldest player on the team, but I'm also the rookie. I've only been playing two in some years. How often do you practice? We try and practice at least two to three times a week, and we play two games a week. We play in leagues. So we play as a team one day a week, and then each of us play on a different team on another day of the week. Why is it a sport for life? In other words, uh, the action of the sweeping, for instance, strikes me as something that could result in a repetitive motion injury. But you've <laughs> talked about this as, as being something you can do into old age. Yeah, well, you know, the throwing piece is not too aerobic. And if you're playing in the recreational level, the amount of sweeping you do can really vary from, from very enthusiastic to just giving it a little bit of help. So you play in leagues where you actually don't need to be as physically fit necessarily. There has been some controversy, and I suppose every sport has its controversy, uh, over the length of the brooms that curlers have to use. What's the story there? Yeah, not so much the length as the broom heads. So uh, we see technology all the time change the ability to how you perform in different sports. Yeah. Baseball sport, as you mentioned, I played. The technology on the bats could mean you could hit it harder, farther. And with the broom heads, they were starting to make a type of fiber that could make you really control the rocks in ways where it didn't almost matter where you threw it because the sweepers could really contort that rock into the location. I see, making those sweepers really more powerful. 
powerful, more influential. Exactly. And and they felt that that sort of ruined the spirit of the game. They have this thing called the spirit of curling. And it's a lot about sportsmanship and, and, and teamwork, but also being respectful to the other side. And so they decided to create a generic type of material when you play at the high end of curling so that while the brooms make a difference, they don't make all the difference. I see. And to even the playing field, to use a different sports metaphor, if you win this weekend uh, in Washington, does your team automatically get an Olympic spot? No, no. If we win uh, this weekend, it's actually a week-long tournament, so we start on Saturday, Saturday to Saturday. And if we win, we would uh, be in a very strong position to make the Olympic trials. Olympic trials will be probably the best four or five teams that are in the United States. That'll happen next year, uh, right before the Olympics. Which country dominates in curling? Canada. Canada. Canada has been historically the most dominant country. And the sport originally came from Scotland, so Great Britain still has a relatively decent team, and it's mm. a popular sport in Scandinavia as well. Thanks so much for being with us. My, my pleasure. Hurry hard, Ryan. Hurry hard. Josh Chetwind is a member of a Colorado team that will play in the USA National Curling Championships in Everett, Washington, this weekend and into next week. Let's meet an experimental poet. Eleni Sicilianos, who lives in Boulder, wants readers to tear into her new book, Make Yourself Happy. And she means that literally. She has included pages that are meant to be ripped out and turned into three-dimensional art. Sicilianos also leans heavily on data, science, and history in her work. And thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Ryan. We're going to get to this idea of tearing pages from the book, but... I want to start with a poem that's actually about books themselves, not destined to be torn up. Uh, Would you read the poem, The Book Is? I'd be happy to. Thanks. The book is the house where the bodies are buried. The book is the catacombs where the corpses enumerate. The book is the joy, is the place where the copses unfold, happy, fragrant, and shining. The book is the meat sliding inside the bear and the bear inside its blanketing fur. The book is the joy was lost on the horizon. As hours flooded in, the trees kissed across the distances and the sun mirrored in its pages the lake. Therefore, long does any animal I leaf the wide pages flammable with life. I feel like that poem gives us insight into what you think a book, even your own book of poetry, is capable of. Absolutely. It's one of the small miracles of the book that it can contain just about anything. It contains deaths, births, histories, and it, in that way, it's a mirror, not an exact mirror, but a mirror of the world outside. And so do you see a blank page as pure opportunity or as a terrifying experience? Both. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, definitely both. Uh, to this idea of tearing pages from the book, there are illustrations designed to become what you call the animal globe. And I, I see you have brought an animal globe with you. Can you tell us what, what this is? Yes, absolutely. So one section of this book, I wanted to document uh, recent extinctions. Uh, and 
It actually started with a visual image first of this globe that tracked recent extinctions that had written over it the names of animals that have gone extinct recently. And so the idea was that in order to assemble this globe, you have to destroy at least part of the book. Mm. And I don't know if ripping works as well. Scissors might work better. Uh, so I, I cut out these pages for you and I put it together using a little mini stapler. And um, you can cut the pieces out and, and put them right uh, together to make this globe. And so on the inside of the globe, you'll have fragments of the poems you've cut out uh, from the book. Why the focus on extinct species and where they come from? Yes. Um, I started this book thinking about, really, I wanted poetry to be able to respond to very basic questions again such as how do we live, how to live, um, what are our pursuits, and of course one of our main pursuits is trying to make ourselves happy. And and then that led to thinking about what are what's what are the consequences of our pursuit of happiness? And one of them does happen to be crowding other species out. And so I want that our happiness yes. might not be the happiness of other creatures. Absolutely. I suppose it depends on how we decide to pursue our happiness. But some of the ways that we've come up as a society to pursue happiness absolutely do uh, impinge on other species. So then I wanted to track that. I was also thinking about um, any species, including the human species, ability to self-make. Um, and, and pursuit of happiness being one of the ways we self-make. How do other species self-make? And so, um, and and how do we how do we impinge on that? Basically, so I wanted to track to track that, and then I wanted also to think about because I think we talk a lot about vanishing animals, but how do we make it tactile in a way? How do we make it palpable? And so, this notion that we actually physically have to interact with the book isn't one way to make it palpable. And the book is Make Yourself Happy. It's the new collection of poetry from Eleni Sicilianos, the experimental poet who lives in Boulder. And one of the recently extinct animals you've written about is the Japanese river otter. Uh, why don't you read that poem for us? Absolutely. And I'll tell you that um, this animal was last sighted in 1979 and it was declared extinct in 2012. Japanese River Otter. It ate eels, beetles, crabs, shrimp, fish, watermelon, and sweet potatoes. It is short, but with details of the animal's diet, that sort of scientific infusion in your poetry. Uh, why is it important to know about an extinct creature? Um... Well, I suppose, I mean, I think about the way that these disappearances are changing without us realizing it, our reality. We might not think about, say, the audioscape that's all around us. We might not hear what a Japanese river otter sounds like when it's crunching on this uh, crab, but it, it profoundly changes the makeup of the earth. So I think it's pretty important. And, and as we know, you know, it's sort of the butterfly effect. You take one little thing out and everything could change radically. Right, that notion of a keystone species. Yeah, absolutely. And, and in that poem, I wanted to think about what delighted this animal. Um, what were its um, pleasures? And also I wanted to not use too much metaphor or be too fancy about it, you know, sort of impose on the animal um, these transformations, but just record some simple things about it. 
I understand that you visited Biosphere 2. Yes, I did. Th- that kind of simulation of, of, uh, of a habitat, of an environment. How did that influence your work? Yeah, so um, listeners may not know that we live on Biosphere 1, which is Earth. Earth, I see. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and um, so Biosphere 2 is, is was an experiment or is an ongoing experiment to see, you know, to create an enclosed environment in case we lose our resources in Biosphere 1 and figuring out what kinds of, you know, carbon exchange and so forth are possible. And so this the last section of the book became this kind of uh, science fiction poetry where I'm imagining a future when we're thinking about um, how we self-make or self-produce. How are we going to do that in the future if we've lost all of our or many of our resources? So I was thinking about about that as a, as a third, a sort of future term of self-making. What image sticks with you from, from Biosphere 2? Oh my gosh. Well, I so much. It's such an interesting, interesting experiment. It's this these sort of glass cases out in the desert. And of all places, it was built in Oracle, Arizona. And um, I guess not necessarily a visual image, but one of the things that I learned in reading about it is that they had to select, um, they tried to have a number of different representative species within the biosphere. Many of them did not survive. They didn't have the right conditions. But one of when they selected their hummingbirds, they had to choose a hummingbird that in its mating dance, didn't do the huge swoops that hummingbirds do up in the air because... It would hit the glass, yes, I presume. Yes, exactly. So that was a, a good decision. They, made. they found a hummingbird that had the exact right beak to, um, uh, you know, access the flowers they had and not to sma- uh, break its neck on the top of the glass. Along with lists of extinct animals, you use other scientific and research data in the book. For example, you have... Uh, psychological survey questions as part of one essay. Uh, In another piece, you cite the frequency of words in blog posts referring to happy and sad. How does that kind of data fit into a book of poems? (laughs) I am always interested in figuring out how to expand what a poem can do or what we think poetry does. And I think that's also one of the ways, just like any species that keeps uh, changing its genes to survive, a, a poetry needs to do that as well. So I like including stuff that sort of um, surprises us in in um, its format and um, expands the notion of, of what a poem is. Yeah. The idea, do you think that there's just more fluidity or room for experimentation in poetry than prose? Well, I live with a prose writer, and I don't want to get into too much trouble. <laughs> a war between poetry and prose here. <laughs> and I think there are there are some pretty radical experiments within prose, too. Um, James Joyce being one of the precursors for that, say. But I think that, that it's true Well, um, that it's part of the, the tradition, perhaps, or one of the traditions of poetry to, to experiment. And just like... In science, that you know, we expect we try things out um, to see what works, test ah, the bounds. Why science is like poetry, and how how you see it connected? Well, I suppose I think that they, we are both. They're both fields that are interested in testing the real, um, and um, yeah, to test the limits of the real. Well, let's hear a final poem about poetry itself, since that's what we're musing on. Uh, can you read? If they asked me to invent a dream. It's on page 37. Yes, I would be happy to. 
And this is uh, Boulder Poets, Eleni Sicilianos. If they asked me to invent a dream, I am walking down a narrow street. I leap into your arms. Your arms are the poem, and I am the poet. How wonderful to meet like this right on the street, stranger. It seems like such a simple poem. Is it? You know, it it, it has a strange poetry logic where the the, the maker uh, jumps into the arms of the thing made that's actually a stranger. Um, and one, the key word in this poem for me is stranger. Um, and I, I suppose there are a couple things. One thing is that poets know that most strangers don't like poetry. So uh, there's a kind of gift exchange in that, um, that uh, a, a stranger is met who's going to be accepting of the poet, but also thinking about, you know, say in Homer's time, stranger was such an important concept. The word Xenia means both hospitality and stranger. So you're, you know, that test that you get if you the, the gods go to your house and if you're uh, welcoming you pass the test. If you're not welcoming, you don't pass the test, and you invoke the wrath of, of whatever god. So, But thinking about this um, notion that a stranger is also a place to receive or give hospitality, which I think is could do us well these days to think about. Yes, some uh, current issues that, that connects with. Mm-hmm. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much, Ryan. That is Boulder experimental poets Eleni Siclianos. Her latest collection is Make Yourself Happy. We've posted one of her poems, which was the result of a vision quest, to cprnews.org. Up next, a tale of two school districts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. News we've just received this morning. The U.S. Senate has confirmed Betsy DeVos as Education Secretary. The final vote was 50-50, with Vice President Mike Pence breaking the tie. Colorado Senators Cory Gardner and Michael Bennett were on different sides of the outcome. Gardner, the Republican, voting yes, and Bennett's a Democrat, voting no. The story now of two Colorado school districts that share a border but are worlds apart. One has a lot of kids in poverty, the other doesn't. In fact, the gap is one of the biggest in the country. Studies show the more students living in poverty, the more it costs to educate them. But how well does the state's funding system recognize that? CPR's education reporter Jenny Brundine took a drive through Sheridan and Littleton as she investigates school finance. Driving southwest out of Denver on Santa Fe Drive. Keep right on US 285 South. You've entered the Sheridan city limits. Sheridan's easy to miss. It's only 2.3 square miles. The school district is so small, there are only four schools. Arrived at Sheridan School District 2. Keep going south. Turn left onto West Bellevue Avenue. Step over a line. You're at the dividing line. On one street is one community, on one's the other. Sheridan's on one side, Littleton's on the other. Sheridan Superintendent Michael Klopp says the differences are stark. 
In Sheridan schools, 84% of students qualify for free or reduced lunch. In Littleton, just 18% of kids do. It's one of the biggest child poverty gaps for two districts that share a border in the country. Those gaps are also reflected in test scores and many other measures, like what districts can pay to attract top teachers. Might be 10, 12, $15,000 difference easily. That's just one of the many differences that arise because the districts have different amounts of money to educate their students. We as a state have moved away from the concept of educating all our children. Superintendent Clough says the state has shifted to a system that lets local property owners give more money to their schools. So it goes without saying that people who have more wealth are often more likely to fund their own local education. To fully understand what he's saying, let's get ready to focus. I'm going to tell you how the two districts that straddle Bellevue Avenue are funded. Schools get money, generally speaking, from two places. The first is the state. There's a formula that tries to make things somewhat more equal. It gives districts extra money for each low-income child, or if the district is really small or has a high cost of living to help attract teachers. The second place schools raise money is local property taxes. But those taxes are based on local property values, and they vary dramatically. Sheridan Superintendent Clough says that's led to vast disparities in what school districts are able to raise locally. So it's all the way down here from 1.68 Superintendent Clough starts sketching on a scrap of paper the staggering differences for what property taxes can raise depending on a district's property values. The low, $19 per kid. The high, $3,239. All the way up here to, I believe, the top rate now Schools is... must also comply with property tax limits set out by Tabor or the Taxpayer Bill of Rights. If districts want to raise more, they must go to voters in what's called a mill levy override. That bumps up the property tax rate. Arrived at Littleton High School. On the other side of Bellevue Avenue is the Littleton District. So our voters here have said yes. This is Brian Ewart, the superintendent of Littleton Schools. Voters in his district have taxed themselves through mill levy overrides to the maximum allowed under state law. And we are at that cap, and so we have that additional revenue to help operate our entire system. Not all districts are at that cap, nor can all districts politically pass a mill levy override. For example, no new taxes kind of a mentality. That really creates a system of haves and have-nots in the state of Colorado. Littleton raises almost three times as much for each student as Sheridan does. But since Sheridan is a district with lots of low-income children, by the time you add up what the state gives and what each district can raise, Sheridan's actually getting about $177 more per student. Here's what Brian Ewart, who heads the wealthier district, has to say about that. For a student with additional needs, That is not enough to solve for that problem. The problem he's talking about is the cost of poverty. He knows this firsthand because he used to be superintendent of nearby Englewood schools, where many students live in poverty. Kids who come out of poverty, they absolutely require additional resources to 
exit the system at the same place where their affluent peers exit from. Studies back that up. One shows Colorado should be spending 35 percent more to meet the needs of each at-risk student. Both Superintendents Clough and Ewart agree it just doesn't cost as much to educate students from wealthier neighborhoods. That means Littleton's extra property tax dollars keep the district afloat in the face of state cuts, but also can buy extracurricular activities, electives, and technology. In 1.2 miles, turn left onto East Arapaho Road. Now, some of this has to do with size. It takes a long time to drive the length of this school district. Arrived at Arapaho High School. Littleton has 10 times more students than Sheridan. That brings in more state dollars. The school can afford to offer things like high-level chemistry classes. Sheridan High, meantime, doesn't offer any advanced placement classes. This story is not about rich districts being happy and poor districts dissatisfied. The two issues at play in Colorado's school finance debate are adequacy. Does the whole system have enough money? And equity. Can students, depending on where they live, get a relatively equal education? Really, in the state of Colorado, we have neither. That's Brian Ewart, superintendent of Littleton. His richer school district has lost nearly $90 million in state funding cuts since 2009. Right now, Colorado spends $2,500 less for each student than the national average. One study shows the state needs another 2000 per student, even in more well-off districts like Littleton. We have a plan, um, but if nothing changes in four years, Littleton will face the same issues that school districts, even in our rural settings, are facing right now. The funding now in Colorado is so inadequate for all that everyone's scrambling uh, to try to keep up. There's a dilemma, and it's written into Colorado law. A number of constitutional amendments and state laws affect the way and to what extent taxes can help pay for public schools. Republican Representative Jim Wilson says lawmakers see the train wreck coming. But any change to school funding is complex and sure to provoke debate and disagreement. The governor wants to raise the sales tax on pot. Another idea is to ask voters to return to a system that lets all school districts basically tax at the same rate. If, by some strange world, the uniform mill levy would go through, how do you allocate the funds and on what basis? What does per pupil actually mean? Does that mean the same in the urban areas it does in the rural area? Or does it mean more money for districts with lots of poor students? Until there's a change, we're left with two superintendents on opposite sides of the street who will keep teaching students in a system nearly everyone admits is financially broken. I'm Jenny Brendine, Colorado Public Radio News. And finally today, choral music from Young Voices of Colorado. That's the name of the group, and they visited the CPR Performance Studio to share a piece by British composer Edward Elgar, Elgar's wife Alice wrote the text, which is full of dreamy, wintry images. This is The Snow.
Young Voices of Colorado, singing The Snow by British composer Edward Elgar. That's Colorado Matters for today. From CPR News, I'm Ryan Warner.